He is risen. My apologies for the unusual entrance. Uh, as uh, Dan mentioned, I, I managed to hurt my back last week, and stairs are not my friend at the moment. Uh, but I don't want to talk to you about my health. I want to talk to you about something far more interesting. And that's the truth. You know, uh, you know what one of the best things about truth is? Most of the time, you don't have to know it, or understand it, or even believe it in order to benefit from it. I love that about truth. Gravity is true, and you don't have to be a physicist to benefit from that fact. It keeps your feet on the ground, whether you're a crazy person or an English major. And that's really good for me. I'll let you figure out which one I am. <laughs> the list of things like that that are true, that we benefit from, even though we don't understand it and we can't explain it, and maybe we're not even sure we believe in it, man, that, that kind of list is, is almost endless, right? <sighs> Respiration is true. I can't quite explain how it is that I breathe in stuff that keeps me alive and I exhale stuff that would kill me. It just is. It, it, it works. It's true. Truth is truth, whether I understand it or believe it or not. And every moment, I benefit from that. And so do you. But only most of the time. There are some truths that if you don't believe it, you won't benefit from it. Take chemotherapy. Chemotherapy can cure some cancers. But if I have cancer, I'm not going to benefit from chemotherapy unless I am actually willing to act on it, like entrust myself to the therapy. Practice makes perfect, generally true. But if I don't act on that truth, that truth is not going to help me very much. Some truths must be believed not in order to be true, but to be of any benefit to the person. Now, why am I talking about this? Well, for the simple reason that Christianity makes a whole bunch of truth claims. Claims about God and humanity, claims about where we came from and where we're going. Some people believe those claims. Some people don't. But those claims are not true because we believe them, and they are not false because we don't believe them. Truth is truth, whether you believe it or not. So on the one hand, it, it really matters 
whether the claim that Jesus Christ got up from the dead is true. It matters. But it also matters whether that's the kind of truth that must be believed in order to be of any benefit to you. And that is really the question that Easter, in general, and the text that we're going to be looking at this morning presses upon us. Not just is it true, but what must I do with that truth if I'm to gain anything from it? Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. If you're using one of the Bibles that we've provided, uh, this is found on page 1020, 1020 in those black Bibles in the pews and chairs around you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 11 is what we're going to be looking at. I'm going to read them right here at the start, uh, and then I'm going to explain how we're going to work through these verses together. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that's the big number on the page, beginning with verse 1. The small numbers are the verses. Now, I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. Then He appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, As to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, So we proclaim, and so you have believed. Well, those of us that have been coming along regularly, we've been working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, and here we are in chapter 15. We're really close to the end. Let me catch uh, everybody up. The Corinthian church that Paul wrote this letter to, the Corinthian church is divided. They're divided over what makes a person spiritual. They have all sorts of ideas about what makes you a spiritual person. But Paul has been kind of arguing with them. He's arguing that the spiritual person is somebody who is marked by the gospel, the self-sacrificing love of Jesus Christ. Now, he actually started his letter back in chapter 1 talking about the gospel, saying that that he came preaching the gospel, specifically proclaiming Christ crucified. Now we're at the end of the letter, and he's actually focused on Christ risen from the dead. Christ crucified, Christ risen from the dead. This is the gospel, and Paul wants the Corinthians to know that gospel should unite you, not divide you. But in order to unite them, they must believe it. 
They must believe all of it. And maybe like some of you here this morning, some of them didn't. So here's Paul's argument to them and kind of my argument to you. We'll put it on the screen. The gospel is true, but you must believe it in order to benefit from it. The gospel is true, but you must believe it in order to benefit from it. We're going to consider first the truth of the gospel. That'll be the longer of the two points. And then secondly, what it really means to believe it. All right, first, the gospel is true. The gospel is true. This is Paul's main point in these verses. But but before we look at all all the evidence that Paul is going to marshal, we need to understand what the gospel is. Paul says there that it is most important. That is, it's it's foundational for for their lives, for for everything he's going to say. And he he outlines it there in verses 3 to 4. The gospel, which is a word that just means good news. If we translated it literally, it would just mean good news. The, The gospel is the message that Jesus Christ died for our sins, was buried, and that he was raised from the dead on the third day. Now, now why is it good news that a first-century Palestinian Jew was crucified by the Romans, buried, and then three days later got up from the dead? Why, Why is that such good news? Well, as the New Testament makes clear, Jesus was not only a man, though he very much was a man. He was also God incarnate, God in the flesh. God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. And he did it not to to show off, not to come and do like cool party tricks that we can't do. No, he did it in order to represent us. He lived a life that pleased God perfectly unlike the lives that we've led. At the very beginning, God made clear to our very first parents that the penalty for sin, that is, thinking or saying or doing anything that doesn't please God, the penalty for sin is death. Well, Jesus took his perfect life, and then he offered himself, dying in our place. As a, as a substitute for us. J- Jesus had no sin, but he took our sin on him. And then he paid our penalty for us, dying a judicial death under the condemnation of God. To demonstrate that God accepted that death as a sacrifice for us, Three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead, never to die again. I want to be really clear here. Christians do not follow a martyred Savior. We follow a living one. And it is his life that actually gives us hope and and demonstrates, kind of proves to us that what he did for us was sufficient. It was accepted by God. Sin could not hold him, therefore death could not hold him. And the message of the gospel is that all who turn from their own sin and instead trust in Christ are actually forgiven 
forgiven by God, all of their shame covered over and removed, and that they too will be raised to eternal life with Jesus Christ. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is what we want you to believe. This is what we want you to understand, not that you should try harder, not that you should be a better person, but that Christ died for you because he loves you and he invites you to participate with him in his resurrection life. That's the message of the gospel. That is what we want you to believe. But I would understand if the question you're asking is, yeah, that sounds great, but, but is it true? I've never seen anybody get up from the dead. It's not something that people do every day. How would I know that it's true? Well, Paul offers three reasons that we're just going to work through. And first, the gospel is true because it was predicted. It was predicted. There in verses 3 and 4, you see twice Paul notes that this happened according to the Scriptures. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, proving that he was dead, and then was raised up, that is, resurrected according to the Scriptures. Now, that's an interesting phrase, according to the Scriptures. Paul doesn't point to a specific verse in the Old Testament. Of course, in his mind, the New Testament hasn't been written yet. So when he talks about the Scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. He he doesn't point to a specific text, but, but maybe he had a passage like Isaiah 53 in mind, which we heard read earlier. The prophet Isaiah had declared centuries earlier that God would one day strike down his servant in death and then raise him up. Isaiah writes, he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. So maybe Paul had verses like that in the back of his head as he wrote that all of this was according to the Scriptures. But but I actually think that Paul is not referring to any one specific verse. I think Paul is claiming here that the entire Old Testament anticipated and pointed forward to the suffering and the glory of Jesus Christ. You know, this is how Jesus read the Old Testament. In Luke chapter 24, after his resurrection, he said to his disciples, how foolish and slow you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Jesus read the Old Testament as if it was a book all about him. And so did Paul. From that first promise to Adam and Eve after their sin, that the seed of the woman would someday crush the head of the serpent, to to the provision of a substitute in the form of a, a ram, so that the son of promise, Isaac, would not have to be sacrificed. To, to the story of Joseph or 
to the Passover lamb, to the life of David, to Isaiah's suffering servant, to Jonah and and the prophecies of Hosea. The entire storyline of the Old Testament points in one way or another forward to the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the sins of his people. And this wasn't an idea that they just kind of came to after Jesus had died. No, Jesus claimed this during his life. He says in John chapter 5, verse 46, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. The gospel of a crucified and resurrected Savior was not plan B after Jesus messed up and got himself killed by the Romans. The, the, the gospel is not the disciples' invention in their, their grief at Jesus' death. No, the gospel is the revealed and predicted plan of God all along. In, in fact, I think this is the main reason to believe the Old Testament. The Old Testament actually makes sense only because Jesus got up from the dead according to the scriptures. Otherwise, it's just the record of other people's religious experiences. And what does that have to do with me? No, God had revealed what he's going to do all along. Then he did it. Now, it, it's, it's one thing to come up with an explanation for an unexpected turn of events after the fact. That's not proof. That's special pleading. The gospel is doing nothing of the kind. It is the fulfillment of what God has been saying for centuries. If Jesus did not get up from the dead, then we might as well use our Bibles as doorstops. That's about how relevant it is. But Jesus did get up from the dead, which means we need to do more than read our Bibles. We need to believe it. Now, Paul offers a second reason that the gospel is true. It wasn't just that it was predicted and then came to pass. No, it was witnessed. You see that there beginning uh, at the end of verse 4. He was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. After Jesus got up from the dead, he appeared in the flesh to a whole lot of people. Now, Paul doesn't mention everyone here, but he's, he's basically following the order that we see in the gospel accounts Gospel accounts which haven't been written yet. So this is something that is widely known among those first century believers, who Jesus appeared to and even what order he appeared to them. The last one, Paul says, was himself. He's referring to Jesus' appearance to him on the Damascus road as he was going to persecute Christians in Damascus. In Acts chapter 9, we read that, that the risen Lord Christ appeared to Paul. I think this is why Paul refers to to himself as to one born at the wrong time. He's, He's referring to his conversion so much later than the rest. 
for he saw Jesus for the first time after Christ had ascended to heaven. Now, what is Paul doing in those verses by, by pointing out all the witnesses? What Paul's doing is he's, he's appealing to the historicity, the historical nature of the resurrection. These people were eyewitnesses. And he goes so far as to point out there in verse 6, most of them are still alive. A few have died, a few have fallen asleep, but most of them are still alive. That means they could be questioned about it. In effect, Paul's saying, look, you don't have to take my word for this. You can talk to these people yourselves. They're known. And it's way too many people in way too many different situations and occasions to chalk it up as delusions or, or, or mass hysteria. Now, the first Christians didn't just claim that Jesus got up from the dead. They saw him. Now, I know some of you may be thinking, yeah, but eyewitness testimony, we know now that eyewitness testimony can be quite faulty. That's true. Eyewitness testimony can be faulty. But despite that fact, we rely on eyewitness testimony all the time. Were any of you in New York City or Washington, D.C. on 9-11? Okay, we got two. You know, most of us weren't there. Heck, a bunch of you weren't even born. But I know that all of you believe that those attacks happened. Why do you believe that? Well, you believe it on the basis of testimony, newspaper reports, and TV reports. You've, 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 you've listened to people recount what they saw. Maybe they even took pictures of what they saw. Well, you realize that the same is true for every historical event that you think actually happened that you weren't present at. We build our whole lives on the testimony of others, and we do it for good reason. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was just as historical an event, like really happened in history, as the Battle of Gettysburg or the Peloponnesian Wars in ancient Greece. None of us, not, not even these two, none of us were at those, at those battles. <laughs> nope, we weren't there. But we believe they happened. We've even gone to see movies recreating the events. We believe they happened because we have eyewitness testimony recorded for us about those events. This is what Paul is talking about here. The first Christians saw the empty tomb. They saw the risen Christ. In Matthew chapter 28, we're told that the religious leaders actually bribed the guards who were at the tomb and couldn't stop the resurrection from happening. They actually bribed the guards to lie about it. You don't spend good money to convince some guards to tell lies about something that never happened. You'd save your money. You'd just produce the body. The disciples saw and touched and even ate with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. You can read about that in John 21. So I just want to pause and say, if you're not a Christian, I understand 
I, I kind of get it. Christianity is a, it's a big ask. It's a big swallow. I, I totally get it. But is it really honest to say that you know the resurrection didn't happen? You just know it. And therefore, the rest of it can't be true. It isn't, isn't that just kind of confirmation bias based on your presupposition that things like that can't happen? And since things like that can't happen, that thing didn't happen. That's deeply circular. And it rests on your presuppositions about what can and cannot happen in this world. But friends, if there's a God, well, my goodness, almost anything could happen. We would love to give you a chance to honestly investigate the historical claims of Jesus. The the eyewitness records that that claim to have seen him get up from the dead. The the people that walked and talked with him, that, that knew him personally, and what kind of man he was. Uh, the, the New Testament contains four different accounts of the life of Jesus. That they all kind of work together, each giving us a view on this most amazing person from the perspective of different people that walked with him. If, if you would like to honestly explore the claims of Christianity, come talk to one of us after this, this service is over. Or maybe talk to the friend that you came with or the family member that you came with. Nothing would give us greater joy than to just sit down and talk through, read through one of the gospel accounts of the life of Christ with you so that you can at least say that you've looked into it, that you've actually read the the historical accounts that claim to be eyewitnesses, and you've evaluated it yourself. Now, Christian, while we're on this topic of history, Let me just remind all of us, our faith is rooted in history. We are rooted in history. As Christians, we're not not escaping reality. We, of all people, are most committed to reality. Because we don't think salvation happens unless Jesus actually got up from the dead in history. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means a lot of things, but at the very least, it means that we should be the kind of people who are concerned to defend historical truth claims of every kind, not just the ones we like, because we're committed to this idea of reality, this idea of history. We should be defenders of history, whether that history occurred two years ago or 2,000 years ago. Because our understanding of salvation depends upon it. Of all people, we should not be the kind of people that are known for responding to history with the the cynical claim of fake news or the cowardly retreat into subjectivism that marks so much public discourse today. No, we are people of history. We want to defend the knowability of history because 
We want to defend the knowability of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul offers a third reason the gospel is true. It's true because it was proclaimed. Look there in verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have believed. Now look, I know, there are a lot of fraudsters and conmen out there. But the hallmark of truth is that truth goes public. We conceal lies. We, we hide what we are ashamed of. But we broadcast the truth. Paul points out that if anyone had reason to be ashamed, it was him. He'd been a persecutor of the church. He goes so far as to say, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle. You know, if, if Paul were operating according to the dictates of shame, if he was concerned about his shame, you know what he would have done after he saw Jesus? He would have suppressed that truth and doubled down on his persecution because he would not want to have to admit that he was wrong. But the gospel was true, and it had changed him. It had changed him from being a persecutor of the church to a preacher of Jesus Christ. And not even shame could hold him back from that. He says he worked hard, harder than the rest. And the book of Acts and, and the epistles demonstrate that. He worked hard to proclaim the truth about Jesus, even though that meant simultaneously letting everybody know a truth about himself that he'd probably rather they didn't know. The grace of God, which is what Paul attributes all of this to, right? Not, by the grace of God, I am what I am, verse 10. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. The grace of God changes us. It turns us from Christ haters to Christ proclaimers. And friends, this is part of the evidence for the truth of the gospel. People don't risk public shame over what they know is a lie. I mean, I, I suppose some would suffer for a lie if it helps them get ahead or, or get something that they really want and the suffering is not that deep. But what are we talking about here? We're talking about public embarrassment? We're talking about ridicule? No, we're talking about suffering. And finally, death. Paul would be executed because of his preaching of the gospel. Are, are, are people going to risk that? Death for a lie? Never. But this is what not only Paul did, this is what all the first preachers of the gospel risked. The consistent proclamation of the gospel by Paul and the rest to their own hardship and suffering and, and eventual execution points to the truth and trustworthiness of the gospel. So, so Christian, understand that, that our evangelism, 
our going out and talking to our friends about the risen Lord Jesus, our evangelism, even though it earns us the, the ridicule and the disdain of a sophisticated modern world, our evangelism is part of the proof that the gospel is true. Our willingness to suffer for the sake of the truth points to the truth. But then so do our changed lives. Our changed lives point to the truth, which means like with Paul, not hiding our shame, but but admitting our need, admitting to those around us that, no, I, I don't have it all together. That's why I need a Savior. Our words proclaiming the gospel and, and our lives being changed by the grace of God work together to demonstrate that Jesus really did get up from the dead. And he did it for sinners like me and like you. The gospel is true. Whether you believe it or not, and the evidence, just some of which I've outlined here today, is compelling. But second, and much more briefly, if you're going to benefit from the gospel, if it's going to do you any good, you must believe it. You must believe the gospel to benefit from the gospel. That's where Paul ends this section. He says, this is the gospel that was proclaimed, whether by him or by the other apostles. And it's the gospel you have believed. You see that there at the end of verse 11. But if you were paying attention when I read it the first time, you'll you'll remember that that's actually where he started, back in verse 1. So he's actually kind of very carefully crafted these couple of paragraphs so that the truth of the gospel is in the middle and at both ends is this call to believe. He says in verse 1, this is the gospel that he preached and that they received and on which they are taking their stand. Now, there are two ideas there and both are related to, to faith, to, to belief. They, they received the gospel. They accepted the gospel as truth. But they didn't just accept it the way I accept electromagnetism. Yeah, it's true. And then I go on with my day. No, they took their stand on that truth. They they trusted that truth. They began to orient their lives around that truth and put their hope for the future in that truth. I don't know what you think faith is, but... These phrases here that that Paul has used, I think, really help us understand what faith is. Faith accepts something as true, but but it is way more than just accepting something. It's, It's more than even just agreeing with something. Faith, at the end of the day, is trust. It's not blind trust. Paul has offered all sorts of reasons. So don't, don't ever say that, that, that Christians like check their minds at the door and are just engaged in blind trust. You don't offer reasons 
if that's what you're asking for. So it's not blind trust. It's a, it's a reason trust, but it is a trust. It's, it's a dependence. And dependence always shows itself in how a person lives. So, so if you understand yourself to be a Christian, I mean, ask yourself, does my faith make any difference for the way I live? Does my faith, my trust in Christ, demonstrate itself, show itself in the way I orient my life? If it doesn't, then the next question you need to ask is, why am I so sure I'm a Christian? The result of faith, Paul says, is that they are being saved. You see that there in verse 2. By which, faith in the gospel, you are being saved. I want to be clear here. Faith alone does not save us. Christ saves us. It's, it's his death on the cross for us that, that saves us from the punishment that, that we deserve. Salvation is by grace. It's, it's a gift. Faith is simply the means by which we receive the gift that God gives us, the gift of forgiveness. And since faith is trust, it keeps trusting. It keeps holding on to the gospel. That's the phrase that Paul uses there. Imagine I'm, I'm, uh, I'm hiking in the gorge with a buddy, and I get too close to the edge of a ravine, and I begin sliding down. And my buddy, very quick thinking that he is, has a rope, and he throws it to me, and I grab hold of the rope. What's saving me from falling to my death? It's the rope. Faith is not the rope. Faith is the holding on to the rope. Now, what would happen if, having grabbed hold of the rope, and now I'm, I'm saved from falling all the way down into the ravine, maybe to my death or harm, I thought to myself, well, good, I'm glad I've done that. Don't need to do that again, and let go. My grasp of the rope would have been in vain. That's the phrase Paul uses here about a faith that is in vain. A flash of enthusiastic religious fervor. A prayer prayed once and then forgotten. Uh, uh, an expression, maybe very sincere, of faith, but that doesn't continue to take its stand on Christ today, is believing in vain. Once upon a time, temporary faith does not save anyone any more than my temporary grasp on the rope saved me from falling. Friend, don't put your hope in something that you did years ago and now only think about at Easter and Christmas. 
Don't put your hope in a prayer you prayed when you were a kid. I haven't really thought about much since. Don't put your hope in the fact that you walked down an aisle at some point, maybe you signed a card or you raised your hand. The faith that saves is a present, current, persisting faith. There is no such thing as historical faith. Faith always lives in the present because faith is always holding on to Christ, our Savior. Paul is concerned about the Corinthians as he writes this, these two paragraphs. Their lives don't look like the persevering faith in the gospel that changes people. Actually, I have a good friend who uh, preached through Corinthians a number of years ago, and the, the title that he gave to his series was Barely Christian. That's an apt series title. Paul's concerned about these folks because their lives are not demonstrating a faith that's holding on to Christ. Friends, my concern is for us. The gospel produces a self-sacrificing Christ-like love in those who have taken hold of the gospel and believed it. A love that works itself out in our lives such that we are about building others up rather than ourselves. And, And why is it that it does that? Because it's the life of the resurrected Christ himself at work in us. Faith unites us to Christ. Faith brings us to his life. So we can say with Paul that it is Christ in me that lives. I've died, and I'm now alive in Christ. Friends, is this what you see in your life? Not perfectly, I get it, but truly, and growing day by day. If this is what you see in your life, then brother or sister, be encouraged. The gospel is saving you because Christ is alive in you. If not, if this is not what you see, then friend, today is the day to believe. Today is the day to take your stand on the crucified and resurrected Christ. The gospel is true. Jesus got up from the dead. But if you would be saved, you must believe. Do you? Would you pray with me? Take a moment and maybe consider those things in your life that feel like barriers to actually trusting in Christ. 
and confess those to him. And ask him to remove them. Lord Jesus, if you were dead, we would not pray to you. But we pray because we know you are alive and you hear our prayers. So we pray that that you would indeed give us a faith that holds on to you. We we, we pray that that you would use your word and the people around us to address those those objections, those, those obstacles that seem to get in the way of us actually being able to trust you. And we pray that for those of us who have trusted you, that your life would be at work in our lives powerfully, changing us and causing us to live lives that indeed are worthy of the gospel. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.